welcome to Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. The scripture reading for today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 to 7. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 1 to 7. You can also follow on the screen. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is the word of God. Last week, just to quickly remind you, we looked at one of the most incredible rich realities. We've been looking at so many, but that one has been still ringing in my heart, and I hope it has been for you as well, about how we heard from God himself as his children, where he says, all things are yours. And we looked at that, and we also reminded ourselves on how, in light of that truth, how futile and foolish it is for us to pursue things of the world, things that... Uh, are sinful and fleeting and deceptive, uh, how we, we really want to see those things that we've pursued for all these years as cheap substitutes to true richness that we have as co-heirs of Christ. And we also looked at how, like in the opening prayer, you heard that how we are sacred, we're his temple, how he dwells in us, how we're protected, how we're cherished, how we're loved. And if just all those realities, just those blessed realities, if only that was true in each of our hearts, you can imagine how the church would constantly be drawn to exalting God and to relating to one another in a manner where there's sincere love. But the truth still in most churches is that we still exalt men, relationships are still fractured. And like you see in the church of Corinth, isn't it? If you've been walking with us uh, through the first three chapters, we're at chapter four now, you see that one of the issues that he's trying to address is divisions that existed among them. And this came because they judged their leaders 
And they use, they elevated them. They used the wrong metric to measure them. They used worldly values in how they looked up to their leaders. It was all shaped in how they thought of life. And so even when, when we speak, if someone was to say, you know, that person, he's cut out to be a leader. I can see some qualities. There's authority, there's style, there's charisma, there's a personality. When you speak like that, it almost sounds normative. It doesn't sound like something's wrong with that because that's how the world thinks. And we bring that into the church as well. And it's almost inescapable because all of us, to some significant degree, have actually been impacted by others' views of us. What people think about us has shaped significantly how we respond and has defined our identity. There are always verdicts being pronounced all around us. And we always are looking for a favorable verdict from people. And so that creates so many complexities in how we relate to one another. At the most elementary level, we gravitate to people who think of us in a manner that is good. And we keep a one-arm distance from people who hurt us or people who do not like us. And we almost accept it like that's a reasonable Christian thing to do. It's really not. We really want to move from there. We want to move beyond the struggles that they have and see how we can grow in our love for the Lord. So how then can a church soar above these issues of envy and jealousy and pride and almost inevitable division someday that every church potentially is faced with? How can we learn to relationally handle these sensitive dynamics with one another? And I want us to look at this passage and see how actually the gospel will address that for us. So when you look at the passage that we read today, Paul, after having said, all things are yours, he wants to build on the truth now and says, okay, if all things are yours and if you believe in that, how then should you see your leaders? How then should you, he he wants to ask them to change their perception on how they see him and Apollos and Peter and all of them. And the same for all of us as a church. So in verse 1, in chapter 4, he says, so then men ought to regard us as servants. And the specific use word used there in the original text, the English doesn't give that away, but in the original text, the word that he uses there to say servants is actually a word for an under-rower. In other words, a person who rows the ship at the lowest level of the deck. So in those days, they would have three levels in a ship, and at the bottommost level, you had people who rowed, they were servants or they were slaves. And so Paul's appeal to them is, That's how you need to see your leaders. But that's in strong contrast to how we look at pastors who are popular in the world, isn't it? When you think of Christian leaders in the world, some names must come to your mind. And you have to ask yourself, what are the names that actually get me to think of them as being significant? What are the reasons for it, rather? Maybe it's their PhD. Maybe they're a big wig at TGC. Maybe they've written a whole lot of books. Maybe the size of their congregation. Now, It's good to respect them and to learn from them and to thank God for them, but it's not good to elevate them. And so actually the question that Paul wants him to consider, even when he says, this is how I want you to think of servants as lower deck rowers, the question is, what are you doing by, are you trying to compete and elevate one slave over the other? All of them, Peter, Paul and Apollos and all of them are in a galley of slaves and why are you competing on who's better? You see, that's a question that's implied over here. And then he goes on in that same sentence also to say, okay, this is how you see them as servants. Then he says, they are trusted. These servants are entrusted with the secret things, the mysteries of God. And now the word that he uses there for entrusted is again a very specific word. 
That picture has an image of a person who's, who manages an estate. So this is a person who's a slave, but at the same time, he's got a significant responsibility to care for the entire estate, for all the other servants over there. But in those days, in a much more hierarchical system than we have today, even that person who managed all this was a slave. So you keep that in mind and you say, okay, that's what he's saying. What is the responsibility then? What is the function this person has, the slave has? And you see that in verse 1, they are entrusted with the secret things or depending on the version that you read, the mysteries of God. Now when you look at that, we've, it's the same expression when you read the word mysteries. This, isn't, this is referring to what we looked at in chapter 2 verse 7 about the secret wisdom of God. It's not trying to tell us that the gospel is mysterious, but the fact it was in many ways hidden. It was pointed to, but it was hidden, but it was fully revealed only when Christ came. And so the responsibility is for these people is to say, you have a call to proclaim God's word and to be faithful in how it is proclaimed and how your life is lived. Now I must say a whole lot of things in this text has just caused me to repeatedly go back and just cherish and withdraw and feel the weight of the responsibility that I have and I trust you feel the same as well. And it's been, it's been going on for all these three chapters. And it says it's required that those who've been given this trust must prove faithful. Faithful to whom? Remember who the master is of this slave. He has to be faithful to Christ. So it's not about their social skills. It's not about how fluent, you know, affluent they are or how fluent they are or how much influence they have over their people. This is not about whether they can be authoritative. There's no special qualification in a manner where you're looking for something elitist about this person. There's nothing like that. In fact, when you go and look at the qualifications for an elder, when you look at it in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, you will notice one of the most remarkable things when you read that description is that it's pretty unremarkable. There's nothing that is actually unique about it. It's almost like it's a description of how every man in the church should be. Yes, there are specific things over there about the ability to teach. You should not be a new convert. There should be a certain repetition of having walked with the Lord. But there are also several other dynamics that other parts of Scripture keep drawing our attention to. And this is one of those that points out the heart of what leaders or slaves must look like. And when you look at this text, it draws our attention to some of them. And the first thing that you realize is one core responsibility is to faithfully proclaim the gospel that God has entrusted us with. Or like in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, that you have to divide God's word faithfully. The whole, everybody on this journey, on this ship or in the church, they need to hear only the captain's word. It is no business for any servant to add his opinion to it or his word to it. And that is why we emphasize repeatedly as a church in how we carefully present scripture. There's a lot of emphasis on whether we're looking at the scripture in its context, on what was said to the original hearers, what was the application for them, and then what's the application for us. It, it is not, there's something in my heart that I'd like to say, and let me find a scripture that sort of gels well or dovetails with that. It's the other way around. What does God want to say, and his people need to hear just that. You know, and that's critical, and I emphasize that because it's destroyed the lives of so many people when leaders and congregations sway from that. So many people that are still dear to me, so many friends of mine and I myself who've been snatched from all kinds of teaching in the past. 
So you'd have places, for example, that emphasize holiness, which is a good thing, but holiness, holiness to a point without giving you the right foundations of grace and what you need to stand on, and that produces legalists. In some other places, there's so much of an emphasis on spiritual gifts. That's not the problem. But the problem is there's never a sound teaching on what the message of the cross actually is. And so there's some sort of a grading in their minds on who is more spiritual than if there are gifts. And that's produced a lot of people over time, unfortunately, who feel a sort of spirituality that's a little superficial because along with that, what seems to be thriving is health and wealth and everything else. It's almost like they want to, to live the resurrected life, but they do not want to be in union with Christ's death. They're trying to separate those categories and they cannot be true. And you know, in all these categories, you will notice that if that's real, those people have a desire to draw them close to you and not to the Lord. There's some sort of subtle influence that they desire. So much to the point where even people feel obliged to them because of their spiritual gift, because so-and-so laid his hands on me. And even been in, I've even been in meetings in my younger days when someone would come up in front and ask a few of us to, if we haven't received a specific gift, to repeat after him and to say it faster. A whole lot of counterfeit revivals like that that the flesh is desperately trying to produce. And then you have a whole lot of other people who love authority and would freely use the word, the Lord said, the Lord told me. And they don't understand the weight of what they're saying. And quite often they would take scripture out of context and then the congregation would start doing the same thing. That's why you've, had, you've encountered so many people who seem to be so clear on something that they want, but it's under the banner, the Lord told me. Brother, the Lord told me very clearly that I need to move to the West now. How do you hear that? Because there's a verse which says, whether you look to the left or to the right, there'll be a voice behind you. Okay, so did you hear Vancouver this morning? No, I didn't, but I was reflecting on that verse, and the first SMS that I got was from an agency that handles immigration. Okay, so it sounds like you're leaving. No, I'm not leaving. I've still got one more promise I'm holding on to in Luke 6, because I don't have enough money. And God says he will shake it, press it, and pour it out abundantly on my lap. Now, that's not a made-up story. There's many people like that that continue to be swayed by Scripture that is not faithful. And so we want to guard ourselves from that, faithfully proclaiming the gospel. But I want to spend a little more time, not just on that, to look at when we're faithful, what should that relational dynamic look like with the Lord who's the captain of the ship and even between the leaders and the congregation. And so when you look at that and you realize this is actually a unique dynamic, if you remember, the title is a slave. And you remember who he, this person is supposed to. He has only one master, that is the captain, Lord Jesus. So that's his commander, that, but his title is a slave. And his function is to serve everybody on the upper deck. And you look at that and you say, that must be pretty easy. It's not. I remember reading what Jonathan Edwards, a devoted pastor, told his congregation. He said... I will gladly be your servant, but I will never let you be my master. And the, the issue there is, you might say, we just need to do what the captain says. It should be a straightforward journey, isn't it? But it isn't, because a whole lot of people on the upper deck might not like what you say. And there might be a constant resistance, because the reality is, when we get on this journey, 
on a ship or the analogy referring to the church, there's a whole lot of people, a mixed bag of people who walk alongside one another. And so you've got people who really are still discovering who this captain is. You've got people who love things that the captain hates. You've got people who trust the captain. You've got some people who do not really trust him. And so when you get all of these people going together, you've got also some people who come along and think this is a luxury cruise liner, that everybody there is actually waiting to serve them and it's going to be a joy ride. And imagine in a context like that when you say, here's what the Lord says, quite often it's going to be, that's not really what I want to hear. And then at that point there's going to be a battle because if the elder or the leaders at that time are going to be swayed by what the people want to hear, then the whole definition of faithfulness, this call to be faithful, starts slowly moving away. Your yardsticks become very different. It becomes become size sometimes. Oh, we've got 2,000 people now. And then you forget what we already looked at in chapter 3 verse 7. You had nothing to do with that. It's only God who brings about growth. Or look at that person's gift. And we want this, we want to elevate this person. But you, you forget the very definition of a gift. That it's got nothing to do with the person. It's God's grace. And it's pointing to something, something else. And so there can be a drifting in the hearts of the congregation and the leader unless we constantly keep listening to what the Lord has told us. And that's why a few sermons back, chapter 2 and verse 2 is so critical for us. That I resolve to do nothing, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And if we keep sight of that, it's good. But if you lose sight of that, the reality is perceptions of all the people that you're serving start actually becoming the force that motivates you and, nav and begins to navigate the ship in a certain direction. And imagine if that happened. If any leader started getting motivated by how people thought of them, it might all look good on the surface, but everybody together is actually sailing to fool's paradise. What if I imagined and I told my friends saying, you know what? Oh, people really care about my daughter's wedding. And he said, why? Because everybody's on a diet. <laughs> my friend would be, you fool, it's got nothing to do with you. <laughs> That's not the metric. But we've got better metrics. There is care and there is faithfulness. How then should we think of what it means to be faithful? What does it mean to actually row at the lower deck faithfully? Because these people who are rowing are always looking and walking and listening to people and their opinions and what they tell them. And so there's going to be a conflict constantly. You can get either consumed with what people think of you and somehow try and build an image in the, in the eyes of these people. The first thing after preaching or teaching or whatever else can you do, the first thing on your mind could be, how well did that go? Instead of, I really hope there's something that God laid in their hearts where they will leave marveling at who Jesus is. Or you, the opposite could happen. It could be, Getting upset and depressed because people are not encouraged and people are not saying good things about you. That's not an easy journey, isn't it? For any of us, we're all subject to this in some way or the other. You know, I can, I can clearly resonate with something like that. Ever since I quit and I got into full-time ministry, one of the constant battles has been, how much do I need to keep explaining to people? I almost feel like I need, there's a need to explain everything and every choice that I make. And on the other end, sometimes the thought would be, they don't need to know. Why should I explain? I don't need to bother. None of those are useful. Because when it is 
I don't want people, I don't care about how people think about it. I don't need to explain it. It goes away from the heart of the gospel, which is you need to be a Jew to a Jew and a slave to a slave for the sake of the gospel. But at the same time, if you go and explain everything, it can be from a good heart that wants to display what's right, but it can also come from a heart that wants to vindicate yourself and present yourself in good light. As for all of us, I trust all of you in some ways are caught up with these perceptions of people around you. What's the way out of this dilemma? Now the answer is not waiting for the whole congregation to grow in maturity and say, we get it, we all understand chapter 2 verse 2, it's perfect in our hearts. That'll happen when the Lord comes. But the truth is, like what's going on in the church at Corinth, you always have different people at different levels of their walk, and so there will always be some verdicts that you hear. Some will still say, Peter is better, Apollos is a little boring. Some people will still come and give you worldly advice. You've got to ask yourself whether you want to take it. Some people may come and say the truth, which might be difficult to receive. You're not as gracious as the other person. Your gifting is actually not this. Why don't you consider that? And as you think of all this, you think of Paul's response to that. What's Paul's response to that in verse 3? He says, I care very little. Now by, by I care very little, he doesn't mean, you know, this doesn't affect me at all. I don't care about you. We know we, Paul deeply cared for them. But the point he's saying is, I am not affected by whether you praise me or whether you have bad things to say about me. That doesn't change about how I need to feel towards you. That's really difficult and you wonder how Paul actually managed to do this. How come he was unaffected? Did he go back home and lie down on his bed every night and say, Lord, I've thought through all this and I've searched my heart and I know and I've prayed about it, I feel okay about this. A lot of us do that, isn't it? When other people don't understand, you pray about it and you go back and you say, the Lord understands. Because who's the person who loves you the most? other than God, yourself. And who's the person who understands and empathizes the most with you? Yourself. And quite often I've seen this, when you would tell people and point out to some sensitive nerve in their life, they would say, nobody understands, but the Lord knows. And at that point you almost want to back off and just pray, because when somebody is pleading to some sort of innocence under the banner that God has understood them, and really, God, God alone can deal with them at some point in time. But that's not what Paul does here. We see that in verse 4. He says, my conscience, you see that? He says, I do not even judge myself. Forget about you judging me. And he says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. So that's not what Paul does. What's the way out of this? Now, before we look at what the answer is, I want us to be very clear to look at whether we've understood what the root problem of this whole issue is. All this slander, all this envy, all this, this perception, all this hurt and these divisions, what's the reason for all this? Think about it. It's not the education, it's not the leaders that are actually the problem over here. The problem is a little closer than you think it is. Just like the eye cannot see itself, there's another part of your body that you cannot see. Even though it's pretty massive. It's your ego. And like someone said, the larger your ego, ego is, the more oblivious you are to it. It's fascinating, isn't it? That's the harsh reality for all of us. And I say that because Paul is actually pointing to this. In verse 4 he says, do not take pride over one another. I remember 
Tim Keller calling this out, he emphasizes the word, a unique word that Paul uses there when he refers to pride. The word used there is an overinflated or a swollen ego. That's the nature of a person who's proud. It's overinflated, it's swollen. And that, and that actually tells us that there's a space within. It was a space that God was supposed to occupy and be filled with his presence. But when he's not there, there's a lot of hot air in it now. And it's swollen. And that word, that overinflated swollen ego, tells us the nature of what that ego is like. You know, your ego can be swollen when you look back at your own life narrative. So it can be a superiority complex or an inferiority complex. If you look at your, back at your life narrative and you look at how you were pretty good at drawing attention to yourself and you've done reasonably well to some degree, then it's swollen because of that. But if your life narrative is different and it's always been about hurt and you're not really as good as you think you are and a lot of negative things and maybe you were taken advantage of in some way and deeply hurt, then it is still swollen because it's hurt and it's inflamed. And both people, both these narratives struggle with pride. Both people have a very different way of dealing with it. One has a way of drawing attention to themselves. The other may not be so much of displaying things and drawing attention. It may be quite often appealing to self-pity, which is a sister of pride. And you keep that in mind. And I want to call out just a few symptoms so as we understand. Because some of these things go a long way in how we relate to one another. The problem is on the inside. It's not outside. So I want to call out a few symptoms of what this looks like. One, a swollen or an inflated ego is always thinking of how you feel. It's always thinking of how you feel. That's not normal, isn't it? When you stood up sometime back to sing a song, did you marvel at your legs and say, wow? Or did you say, I can't believe it, my eyes can read. It's only when something doesn't function well that it draws a lot of attention to itself. And there's something wrong with our ego because it's always thinking of itself. Second, an inflated ego is always working overtime. It's always working overtime. So it always needs to compare and compete. If no one was around, our life will be so much easier, isn't it? No pressure to be taller, shorter, darker, fairer, whatever it is. Or if everybody was rich, everybody had the same accessories, same lifestyle, same products, same houses, same cars, then there'd be no problem as well. But that's not the truth. And so our ego is always making sure to affirm to you that you are not a nobody. And therefore you have to differentiate in some way or the other. There's that constant pressure. That's why people are constantly modifying everything, even their own bodies whether it's a tummy tux or a Botox or whatever else and liposuction and inflating their lips and coloring their eyes and doing things with their hair. There's this constant pressure that all of us have, constantly adding accessories that we don't need in our life. But there'll be a point when it's just not going to fill us. Thirdly, an ego that's swollen and always draws attention is fragile because it pays significant attention to how you are treated all the time. Pays a lot of attention to that. Sometimes when people say, you know, that person, someone really needs to speak to them. They're so rude. He said this. He just walked past me. You've got to pause and ask yourself, what is at the heart of that? Do you really love that person so much and you're saying, I don't see Christ in them? Or sometimes is it about, I don't like the way I'm treated. 
you know, and this affects, in fact, not just how we look at it, it affects also how we receive counsel, how we hear God's word. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've noticed this over the years, that if you're a person with a superiority complex and your ego has been swollen because of that, then constantly what you want to hear is some words of conviction. Like, I want the sermon or I want the Bible study to tell me something about how there's some fault and there's sin. Because what they're trying to do is actually deflate their ego because they know it's swollen. But that's not going to help. And in fact, people who teach would do that as well, who still struggle with a superiority complex, they would always want to say, this is not true, that's not true, can you see the gap in your life? Deflation doesn't help. And people who struggle with an inferiority complex on the other side, their feedback always might be the opposite. That's too harsh. I, I need a little more encouragement. Aren't we a little better than what you said? Can it be that bad? And both those are because what are they trying to do? There's hurt and their ego swollen. They constantly want, want some kind of balm to sort of soothe that. It can impact how you serve. It can impact how you receive. It can impact even how you parent. It impacts all relationships because I constantly have asked the Lord for wisdom on how you do this because you want your children to know that they're fully accepted and loved with nothing that they do. But at the same time, you know there's a craving for a wrong kind of acceptance and if you elevate them to a certain point, it's only going to feed them with what the world is giving them. And she realized, what is the balance? How you go? Where do you draw the line? And you think of all this and you say, how do you deal with one another in the church? That's family too. And when the person on the lower deck, his responsibility is not to come and puncture the egos of people who are inflated to say, you need a little deflation, then you'll do better. You need a little humility. That's not going to work. Neither is his work to come week after week with some sort of balm and say, I hope you feel a little better. Does this part of the sermon encourage you? What's the way out? The answer is in faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Now some of you are going, that doesn't, I don't know what that means. And it's good, because I hate categories where we nod our head to and we haven't understood it. I've done that for years. But how can the gospel answer this? And I want us to see the answer as we look through these verses. Look at what Paul says in verse 3. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. In the first part of the verse, he says... You know, dear Corinthians, what you think of me, highly or poorly, it doesn't affect me. You can rate me against Apollos, it doesn't affect me. In fact, I've heard a lot of verdicts in some of the human courts, that don't affect me. And then he appeals to a different court. Do you see that? He says, there's another court where I draw my confidence from. It is the Lord who judges me. That's pretty strange. So it doesn't matter what you think and my own conscience, I'm going to go by this. I find so much comfort. God, you judge me. That's a scary place to put yourself into. But Paul doesn't feel like that. Why? How can he say this with confidence? Unless he has already heard a verdict that the Lord himself has proclaimed in the court. You see? Paul's heard a verdict already. That's why he says, I'll go with this. I'll put myself in the hands of God. And I don't know if you've heard it. We've said this so many times. And you need to ask yourself whether it's still a concept here or whether you really experience and believe this. That because of the finished work of the cross, God invites every sinner into the courtroom that his son is paid the price for. 
And then he says something. What does he say? He says, you're justified. He says, come into the courtroom now. For nothing that you did, I'm going to declare a verdict to you. It's got nothing to do with you. It's because the Son of God died for you. He says, you can stand there. And the word used there is a legal word. It's a declaration which says, listen to this. Leave now from the court. You are innocent. You are righteous. I don't know if you really believe that, but could you go back and read those verses? You've got to think of maybe Romans 3, 21. You go back home and you reflect on that and say, but now a righteousness is revealed from God, but apart from the law. It was what the law and the prophets were always pointing to. What were they pointing to? To the gospel. And so what is that righteousness? The verse tells us, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. So you come as a sinner and you say, I put faith in the finished work of the cross and I'm innocent and I have a right standing before God. That's all it takes. Yes, that's all it takes. You have to remind yourself, this is not by any deeds that you and I do. Like in Galatians 2.16, we're declared righteous not by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. You know, I've heard this many years back and it's stuck in my head and I've said it before. This is the only worldview, the only place, the gospel, where we hear a verdict before the performance. We don't hear that anywhere. There's a verdict even before your performance. So what, what Christ is telling us, brothers and sisters, is that when Christ died, something happened. He imputes to you something. Christ's own perfection as if it was yours. Says, that's how I look at you now. You're perfect and you're righteous and that's your new status. So when you are struggling in the courtroom of men hearing these verdicts all the time, does this come to rescue you? Paul says it does. I can hear people say X, Y and Z, but it is the Lord who judges me and he knows the Lord's verdict already. And I don't know whether you struggle, whether you keep reminding yourself of this truth and experiencing it, or whether you still battle with the rest. It's been years, isn't it? Have you found freedom as yet? Because for years, for decades, we've grown up and people telling us, you've got to do, you've got to do, you've got to do. And only if you get to a certain place, you look like that, you talk like that, you get to a person, will there be some acceptance? If not, you're a nobody. And then we keep listening to that and then we come to the gospel and we hear the opposite, isn't it? Has that opposite settled in completely? That when you look at your life and you look at Ephesians 2 and verse 3 and you say, God, I can so clearly see how I love things of the world and I deserve wrath. And every time we go from, I keep repeating the same verse, when we go from Ephesians 2, 3 to 4, something changes suddenly for nothing that you do. You deserve wrath. And verse 4 says, but because of his great love and his rich mercy, God made you alive even when you were dead in your transgressions. And goes on to explain how it's got nothing to do with you and it's a gift of love completely by grace. And you think of that and you say, Lord, this is a very different verdict. And you think of how he deals with your inflated ego. What is he doing? He's not deflating it, but he's actually filling it. That's what God does to our ego. He doesn't deflate it, but he fills it with his word. And then you're able to see yourself the way God wants you to see yourself. 
And imagine what our lives would be if we internalize this. That if our, all the, you know, our inflated ego preoccupies us and has created so many habits and patterns that we're slaves to. But imagine the gospel redeeming all of those. Now those habits usually are not just big ones like smoking and drinking and pornography, but just normal ways of thinking. I thought of just two of them and I'll call those out to you. Two simple ways in which the gospel can redeem what the ego might have done for us. One is your desire to talk. To maximize airtime. Don't you know that your ego loves your voice? <laughs> That's when, like in verse 6 he says, people went beyond what is written. They went beyond what is written. Paul is not quoting a biblical passage over here or a verse. This is a probably a familiar slogan, like keep your finger to the text, don't go beyond it. And D.A. Carson says this when he refers to that. He says, by elevating criteria of personal taste to the level where they enable Corinthians to write off some of their leaders, the believers at Corinth weren't sticking to biblical revelation but going beyond it. They weren't going by what the mystery of the gospel or the message of the cross was. They added their own ways. They went beyond what is written. They elevated leaders the way God did not want them to and it resulted in all of this. And so upmanship among one another, who, those who belong to the crucified Savior, is repulsive to the Lord. The second thing is, your ego loves being first. I don't know if you've seen that in your life. Whether that's at work, whether that's at school, at your, or even at church. I recall some time back, I was thinking of this, and I remember some time back when our church started, there was a rush when I had to wish somebody for a birthday. I wanted to be the first one. Have you ever felt like that? It's their birthday, I want to text them before the other people do. And God stopped me in my shoes there and said, what's this passion about? Imagine wanting to wish someone and say, I want you to have such a great day, where actually your ego wants to sing how great you are. And thankfully God stopped me there and said, what's the truth? You don't need that. Because the truth is what we already heard. And we have everything in Christ. And God has declared us in a certain worthy manner. And people cannot add to that, don't need to affirm to that. Only when that is true will you be able to relate to verse 6. Where Paul says, brothers, I've applied this to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. Whatever he does, that's faithfulness. Whatever he does now is constantly thinking of the other person's benefit, not yours. How do I do? What did they, give me some feedback. How did... Has this encouraged you? Only when our hearts are filled with the truth of this richness that Paul is pointing to, will we, like the woman at the Samaritan well, actually overflow. Either you're overflowing or you're filling your cup with different things. And the heart of that, it could be people. That's why many of us struggle with FOMO. It's a subset of the same thing, a feeling of missing out. Because you always want to know what something hap happens in other people's lives. You, you visited that person, I didn't know about it. You did that, they called you, that happened, I wasn't invited. And you can never sleep sometimes. You know, decades back, people used to stand across the walls and listen to what their neighbors say. There would be street talk, there would be a lot of gossip. Now all that is gone. Not because of the gospel, because of Instagram. <laughs> but when you think of these habits, and when you say, when I hear this verdict that God declares and I have a right standing before him and God says, everything is yours 
and here's your identity and here's the truth of who you are, then you realize you're not missing out on anything. You see people around as missing out of these rich realities and your heart is drawn to think of what will benefit them. And then he moves us from here and I want to close with this, this beautiful truth that he points out. Because when you read this, you realize something. Believing and cherishing the great verdict is not just for this present reality. You know this, you are justified, you have a right standing, now go. But by the way, I'm going to watch how you perform. Don't forget there's another judgment right at the end. That's not going to help. So I'm justified and then now I can go with that freedom. But I still have a final judgment and how I will stand before him, isn't it? That's going to create tension in me. Now we have to remember justification is one time, once and for all. Your adoption is one time, once and for all. And if you don't believe on those truths, your sanctification is going to be a mess. Grace that snatched us from the past and grace that holds us in the future, in the, in the present is great. But an incredible part of why we press on is future grace that awaits us. Why do I say that? Let me read this verse for you, verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive praise from God. Did you notice something strange over there? It doesn't end with each one will receive a word of rebuke from the Lord. It ends with praise. What kind of a relationship is that? You know, when I was a kid, I'll close with this illustration. Every day when I was a little boy, I used to come running home. I still remember vividly, I would run into my house, drop my bags and turn left into the room where my grandparents were. Why? Because every time I went in there, I was assured of a hug and a kiss. And so I would go there and then my grandma would ask me how my day was and I would tell her I was the fastest kid on the block or I would tell her how the teachers thought I was an absolute star and I would make up a whole lot of things to impress her. And I would sometimes maybe even speak of a small bruise on my leg as if a spear had gone through it, trying to stir her emotions. And through all that, she would love me. She'd pour her love out. But she was not dumb. She knew when I would exaggerate. And quite often, she would put her arm around me and sing this song. It was a, it's not a gospel song. But there were only two lines to it. <laughs> it was never to tell a lie. Never to tell a lie. I think the whole house knew that song. Because every time I went in, I think they would hear the song on the outside. But the beautiful part was, I could go into that room knowing I'm not going to be judged. And even when I boast, there'd be an arm around me saying, you don't really need to. And at the end of that song, that be she'd reach out to this box and she'd pull out uh, this, this horrible looking packet. It had 10 layers of plastic covers on it and 15 ribbons on uh, rubber bands on it, if you've seen some of those with your grandmothers. And she'd unpack all of that. And then inside that, there'll be uh, these, ha these uh, hard-boiled candies. Now, I didn't, I'm pretty sure when I, if I went and checked the expiry date, it'll be way beyond that. But I was born in India and my guts were pretty good, like many of you. And so those went down pretty well. And they would, I would even be allowed to choose between a yellow candy and a red one. Now you think of all that and you say, wow, and I thought of that and I said, I knew the end, come, end outcome before I went into a room every time. There was no fear of punishment. And every time I boasted the way she healed it was, I already love you. What's the song about? 
And you think of what it is with a father. Now, my grandmother obviously would have been a sinful woman. In fact, my sister said it was all favoritism because she never got any of that. But when you think of your heavenly father, you realize the richness of the relationship that you might be missing out on. That for years, he puts his arm around you. Think of the kind of long-suffering for the years where you refused to listen to him. And he kept whispering songs and words of grace in your heart. Think of the number of times how, despite how wretched you've been, he keeps unpacking every layer, not pointing to condemnation, but pointing you to the gift of salvation. Showing you different colors and different things that are so tasteful from the same gospel. And if that is true, then you realize that's how God's been dealing with my ego. He's not deflating me. He's filling it with the truth of his gospel and what he's done for me through his son. And as you think of that, you realize you have a father who knows how to encourage the feeblest of children. Would you reflect on the truth? Would you take some time just to think of whether your ego has been shaped by the gospel, whether you're able to row in the lowest deck, if that's your call in your life, whether you're able to relate to one another in a manner that the Lord wants you to, whether you still need man's acceptance, or whether a verdict that you've heard in God's court is set you free once and for all. And as you ask that, and as you reflect on that, Ask the Father to make Christ your master alone and not people. Ask him to redeem you from the slavery of looking for cheap substitutes to what he wants to actually flood your heart with. Ask the Spirit to help you and understand the richness of this great verdict. And take some time and converse with your Father and be honest to him. And ask him to take what's been in our mind for years and help us cherish it. To give you wisdom to see how you can apply this, not just leave with concepts, but how this can be something where you taste and see that the Lord is good. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com, for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.